Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Hi, Nicholas. How are you? Excellent. Thanks, Jordan. Great to have you on the third episode of Startup Stories. Looking forward to learning all about your your journey at Zatu. So you've been a CEO at Zatu for 16 years. Wow, you must have really seen it all. (laughs) I've seen a lot, not quite for 16. I'm with Zatu for more than 16 years. I'm the CEO for 11 years, for 11 years now. Wow. Well, what I'd like to do is I'd like to dive straight into it and find out you know, not why why you're in your position now, but more so how you got started in your position at Zatu. So let's go right back to your childhood as early as that. Take me back to your childhood. What was life like for you? Very protected, I would say. So I lived where I, I live again, namely in Cologne, in a area with houses and gardens and kids could play on the street. The school was close by, walking distance, very narrow scope, I would say, uh, which maybe led to a narrow mindedness as well. But we'll we'll talk about uh, my further life later. So very quiet, uh, very protected. Interesting. So when you say protected, do you mean you, you, you wasn't allowed to go out of your local town, your local village? Is that what you mean? No, not, not about not being allowed. I mean, I was allowed playing outside and so on, but it was easy. Everything was quite easy. I mean, my, my mother was at home and um, taking care. I had like uh, warm meals twice per day. I was not taught to some kids when they are 12, 13, they already participate in cooking meals or, or even washing their own clothes and so on. That until I was far an adult, I uh, was a bit spoiled, if you will. So everything was taken care of. I could really focus on things I wanted to do or I had to do in school. And what were you like as a kid growing up? So my, I have one sister. She's nearly 10 years older than me. Okay. So what I did not have at home is this, uh, as I know uh, you had, Jordan, like brothers or sisters uh, that were close by age-wise. So it was rather quiet for me. When I look at my boys, they like fight 10 times per day or so. <laughs> I did not have that. I always had good friends. So friendships always meant a lot to me and had them over. And I think I was quite creative. So we always built things like with Star Wars figures, but when then we also built like our own rockets and so on for them. And I enjoyed that even later to, you know, be creative and, and do, do stuff. Interesting. So when you started to get into sort of the late teenage years, 
going through schooling, your education, I assume, and stuff like that. What got you started on your career path with, is it Boston Consulting? Is that, that's where you began your professional career? Yes. So I would say as steps before, it was not very much an active decision as rather, you know, the next step, which was an easy choice, you know, where you could not do much wrong. That's how I perceived it looking back. So what I was really passionate about when I was 16, 17 was uh, filmmaking, you know, we did music clips, short videos and stuff. I applied for, I think, only one school and they turned me down and I was like, okay, then not, <laughs> you know, and I don't, then I just study economics and law. That's like the logic is that I don't do a lot wrong if I do that, right? I have a good base for everything. And I was quite fast in, in finishing that. And then I also did my, my PhD and, and second law exam. It's like the, the logical steps without, you know, having to make a big decision. And since I did not want to become a lawyer or a judge or something, I felt, okay, somebody told, actually applied for Bertelsmann. They had like the young entrepreneur program. And I naively thought, well, I've, you know, great grades and uh, did a lot of internships and so on. And they, they must love me. And they were, of course, very right in not giving me that uh, job because I didn't know anything about uh, real life <laughs> uh, as, as an entrepreneur. So they turned me down and I remember talking to uh, one of their like recruiters and, and they said, well, you know, you have this background in law, but you want to go to business. Why don't you go to a strategy consulting firm in between? And I thought, well, that, that, <laughs> that sounds good. So let's apply for that and do that. So it was still that rather, you know, easy, just go along basically up to uh, my time at BCG, which I'm very grateful for that. Looking back, I, I did learn a lot uh, there, though I realized parts of it only later. So when you was, you did four years there, right? Is that right? Four and a half years, including one year MBA. Okay. So what all of a sudden made you think, right, this is enough for me. I want to try something new and then transition to Zatu. What, how did that come about? So when I went to the, when I went to BCG, the plan was clear that I did not want to become a consultant for life, but I saw it as a step in between. And then became more and more clear. Now, Nick, you need to decide. Now you, you know, finally <laughs> should do what you actually want to do. And I was quite late with that, but I felt that I was not 100% passionate for consulting. And also I did like, you know, insurance companies and, and industry I was not that in, interested in, which by the way is also a big mistake to come in a job with that attitude of like, yeah, it's not, you know, I would have wanted to do something else, but all right, I'll do that. So because then, then you're not giving everything for the company and, and as importantly, uh, you don't get as much out of it for yourself. But again, I, I didn't really realize it. I look at, at younger colleagues of mine now and they are much smarter yeah, than, than I was. But then it was really clear that I said, okay, Nick, the, the next thing you have to pick based on what you really want to do and, and what you, you know, what feels good, what feels like 
fun, what gives you 100% energy to go for it. And as I said, I, I was very much into like movies and, and television and so on. And while Zatu is, is not a like TV production house, it was all around TV. It's, it's a tech company, still is. Uh, we're distributing TV, but it's all around TV. So that was my chance to dive in. And my first job, I didn't start this year. My first job was um, content acquisition. So, so dealing with TV stations, making deals, which was great because it was not just something I, I thought is cool and, and I felt passionate about, but also something I could use my, my skill sets as a, as a consultant for and a law background. So it was really all coming together, which gave me the chance to then really giving 100% and, and doing a really good job. And then within that too, I'm grateful to get the chance to then further, further develop. So when you joined Zatu, it wasn't at the very beginning, was it, when they started, they founded? So it was founded in 2005 and uh, it really started mid-2006. Then that's, that was the first time that the product was actually out there. And for the World Cup 2006, users, test users could actually see how that is working. Really live streaming television on your computer. And I joined in January 2007, so half a year after the whole thing really started. So, as you say, when it really started around the 2006 year and you came in 2007. So, when you joined, can you give me an idea of where the company was at then and then what your position allowed the company to do or transition into? The company had a working product which was very innovative at the time, very unique also with a lot of flaws, of course, but still outstanding. What we did not have at that time is a reputation, uh, a significant amount of, of users. And what we also did not have is any content rights outside Switzerland. Mm -hmm. In Switzerland, it's important to understand the regulatory environment is very easy. You go to a collecting society so a society that aggregates all rights, basically, I'm simplifying a little. And you say, hey, I want to start redistributing TV. And they tell you, okay, that's per user, 50 cents, go for it. And that's it. Very standardized. While in all other countries, uh, in Europe and elsewhere, you need to negotiate also with TV stations to get the rights. So it's far more complex. And we didn't have that at the beginning of 2007. So that was the situation when I started. Shortly after I started and, and nothing to do with me starting, there was a TV show in Switzerland which picked up on, on Zatu. And that's where the users poured in and, and word of mouth spread and so on. And it was clear, hey, that is a thing, that's a product that users actually like. So that happened shortly after I joined. And regarding the rights, I was not the only one dealing with that. Um, there were also colleagues dealing with that. We jointly found ways to acquire rights also outside Switzerland. Very interesting. So you started off in your position out as a content manager right at the beginning. So what led to you know someone going from a content manager position 
to CEO of a big business. You're, you're what, 250 plus people nowadays. So have you always had leadership qualities in yourself? Did they see that? How did the transition come about? I'll, I'll talk about the transition and we can talk about, you know, born leader versus learn how to do it and then maybe separately because I think it's a distinctly different and a big question in itself. So what happened is that in 2007, 2008, we had this yippee yeah startup phase. So uh, the founders did a great job also getting investors on board. Uh, we had a lot of money. We dreamt huge. The business plan was insane. So the, the idea was to take that product and a B2C model around the world with an advertising finance. So, so TV, you know, for free, financed with little ads. If, when you switch the channel back then, the technology was not like you have instant, you know, starts. It took a couple of, of seconds to buffer and in that little time you show a little ad. That was the original idea. Mm -hmm. And we thought that's great because you have like satellite and, and cable and, and back then in a lot of countries tv stations were actually paying for distribution they were not getting money for content but paying for distribution i thought they will love us and give us the content for free we'll distribute it for free and we'll make money with advertising so the reality looked different the strategy of, of most channels already was no, no no we get money for content which makes it hard to finance it purely with advertising because if you pay per user for the content, you need a certain amount of money per user, which generally requires a subscription model or at least a mixed model. Anyways, in that phase, it was all growth, 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 you know, hire more people. A lot of great people joined. One of the founders, McKinsey. So I think when I started, there were like five, six McKinsey's at the time. So really like high quality people on that side, high quality people on the uh, engineering side. The other founder is a professor who kind of hand selected the very best students to join, also found some senior PhDs and so on. So it was really a top-notch team. Now in 2008, we found that product works very well in the sense of attracting users. With our business model, however, more users meant more streaming cost and more content cost because both are completely variable depending on how much users you have. And the advertising model was not yet working at all, which meant the more successful you are, the bigger your burn rate gets. Also, the team got bigger, so the fixed cost increased. And in 2008, the financial crisis came along. I think it really hit end of 2000, but mid 2008 was already like, Ooh, things get more difficult, investors more careful. And suddenly a business model, which was innovative and original a year ago, became unproven because you couldn't show, you know, anywhere else in the world, somebody being successful with that because you were the first one. So it was very difficult in that situation. And to cut it short, we didn't get the, the funding to just power through. And we had to significantly reduce costs. We also had to decrease the team from more than 60 to below 20 people. We had to renegotiate contracts, which sometimes came with bigger minimum guarantees, which was clear we couldn't really fulfill. Uh, we changed the technology, we, we went out of countries, uh, which we put a lot of effort going into. 
to then restart basically in 2009 as a much smaller version with a much more conservative approach with a clear goal, let's prove the business model, let's get profitable. And within that phase also, like everything changed, right? And uh, my job was basically after spending all that money on content, now get it back. So I was, I became responsible for our advertising business. And that went well. It gave me the chance to prove myself and the board, so founders and, and, and investors found that I did good job on that. So in 2010, I became COO, which was kind of a test phase for CEO. And then in January 2012, I became CEO of Satu. That's a very interesting story. So would you say that the crisis in 2008 was almost a good thing, really? Because from my experience, when something like a crisis happens and you have to sort of reinvent yourself and revamp the whole business, the best ideas and, and transitions come from bad times from in my personal experience. Is it, was it the same for Zatu, would you say? Definitely in some regards. So if that would not have happened, we would have probably continued with some mistakes longer than necessary and earned more money than necessary. So it forced us to concentrate. Also true is that in that phase, and you often have that in a company, right? The pendulum that maybe swings too much to one side. So we became super thrifty and super conservative, which was okay because we were very early. On the other hand, in a dynamic market, it should really be about growth, right? You, you should be able to invest in growth, capture market share and so on. It, it's not a, we basically had a strategy which more resembles in, in your strategy matrix, like turning it into a cash cow at a point where the market is still starting to grow. So that was a great learning, I would say, and it's still in our DNA to be very frugal, is that the word? And at the same time, it was very important to also get out of it. So when we became profitable in 2011, 2012, we sat together and said, okay, and now we really need to invest much more again. And we can because we were growing, profitably growing and so on. So we said, let's not start paying dividends or something, but really go for growth, invest in our product, which means investing in our team. The complexity grew was not just an app for the computer, but the iPhone came up and the Android phone and, and smart TVs at the horizon. So the amount of work or the amount of people needed for a modern IP TV service uh, exploded. Um, while at the beginning, maybe, you know, you could do the thing with five, six people. Suddenly you needed easily 20, 30, 40 people to be competitive because also the market around us picked up and, and telcos uh, invested and so on. So it was crucial to also change our strategy again or, or adapt it to more invest and, and growth oriented course. Yeah, I can imagine the, as you say, like the market evolving themselves as well. I mean, it was probably like the mid slash late 2000s when the iPhone started to become popular. And obviously now today, almost every single person you and I know 
have an iPhone. So that's a massive contributor to pull towards what people watch their content on, on live streaming and stuff like that, which I imagine has a good impact on Zatu because obviously that's the industry that you're in. So it was both. It had an impact on the opportunities uh, to make money because it became clearer and clearer that our product is not just an add-on to your cable subscription. Uh, so you have TV at home and then maybe on your computer in your office you watch the tennis match or something like that. But with more and more devices, with better and better broadband penetration and also with features like, you know, personalization, but especially time shift, it was clear that our product is in many ways superior to traditional TV. It's not just, okay, it's available on, on the same thing on your computer, but it's actually better in many regards. So that was a huge opportunity for growing subscribers, but also growing our B2B business, where we offer our product as a white label to ISPs who not only want to sell internet, but then also modern IPTV move away from traditional cables. So that was a huge boost. And on the other hand, it also, again, changed the complexity and the need for investment. And back then, there were two competitors in Switzerland that were roughly our size. They came in later, but they did some things better than us. And it was really roughly on par, the three of us. And there, I would say, we really outpowered by, by investing, adding more devices, becoming stronger, and betting on the right strategy. What would you say has been the best part of your journey so far as Atu? I wouldn't want to miss any of these different phases. I think what was very satisfying is when we decided let's invest again in growth and let's enter the B2B space, which was also a big bet, to see this plan working. To see a plan working is, is quite satisfying. And, and doing that with you know great people around you who enjoy that, hiring more great people after having this phase of you know, this down phase, I think we and I could appreciate the going up again even more than in the very first startup phase. Yeah, that must have been so satisfying. And that was in the year 2011? Roughly 11, 12, that's when we started to say, okay, let's go for it now. We, we have the strength. We've, we've, you know, we've been in the fitness studio for a couple of years and now... Uh, we know much better how to spend our money than in year one and two. Yeah. And does that correlate with being the toughest time of your journey as well? Or, or has there been an, a different, tougher time? I think at least subjectively, the toughest time was uh, from mid eight till end nine, when we didn't know if Zatu would survive. So it was very close. And I think a lot of companies have to go through that phase. And I don't even know if it's like, you know, necessary or the time you learn the most from, but it's just, it was true for us. And I know it's true for a lot of companies that you go through a phase where you don't know if this whole thing is working, if where you don't know if you have enough cash next month. And that 
also was a phase when we again had to reduce the team. So a lot of people issues, which are usually the one that stress you the most, at least that's true for me. So that was the toughest time. How close really were you to Zatu no longer being a business anymore? Close. We were close to it. We didn't have the full backing uh, of investors. We were depending on TV stations also being okay with having new terms. I mean, we were very transparent about our situation. That if, if nothing changes, all the contracts are there, we will not survive that. Then we, then we have to go to the court and say, here, we have more debt than money or you know, however exactly that's defined uh, to, to be insolvent. So it was definitely close. And one of our founders, Bjergknecht, she also invested again in the company. So she strongly believed in uh, our future and basically made sure that we could go through that phase. And obviously, fast forward to today, you seem like a thriving business, 250 plus employees. You've expanded quite a lot. I do see you a lot over LinkedIn and stuff like that. So what are the goals now for, for Zatu? What are the, the ambitions? How far do you want to take it? So we want to um, continue growing for sure. We, we're still in a dynamic market. So we think just sitting there does not make sense. We want to grow. And the clearest growth opportunity we see in the B2B field. So on the B2C side, where we go out with our own brand, TV as an app, right? We concentrate on Switzerland, Germany, and also Austria. And as of today, the plan is to stay in that region. Because we, we still know from our early days how difficult is to enter a new region. You basically start from zero again. You need to acquire content, you need to build a reputation, you need to get users on board, you need to get involved in the local advertising business. So the business case for that always looks like, okay, big pre-investment and then it takes time and then you break even and then it takes time to get your money back. And that's a big bet which depends on a lot of external factors that you cannot control. It's always possible that like the biggest private TV channel would say, I don't give you the content anymore because I changed my strategy or I double the price or whatever. So the beauty of the B2B business is that you partner with ISPs that already have users, that have a reputation, that have a way to make money with users and that also have a need because our typical customer would be not the Vodafone or the Deutsche Telekom, but the slightly smaller, sometimes still very big, but smaller than those global players. Uh, and sometimes also really small ISPs that still want a modern IPTV for their users. So they can also offer internet and telephony and TV and have a triple play offer to compete with the Vodafone and the Deutsche Telekom. And that is something where I feel our product is a perfect match for. Also the way we've built our platform that we can actually serve external customers uh, as a service, give TV as a service to them. And that is very powerful. And that market on the one hand is very uh, competitive as well. There are a lot of players out there that want 
to do that or already do that or claim to do that. And when you look at uh, some of them are listed on how they are doing, a lot of them are not doing very well. So they, they are neither growing nor profitable. So it's hard to really build a good solution and make money with it. And we are in a position where we have both. We have customers, uh, we have profitable business. So I think we have a very strong base to export that outside the DACH area. Most of our customers are still in the DACH area. But as I said, in that case, going to another country is not a big difference to having another customer in, in, your, in your core area. So that is the clearest growth opportunity. And then there are other plans also for our direct-to-consumer business or B2C business. We have plans to grow and, and great ideas and colleagues are working on some things. But I would say that's the clearest, hopefully easiest to grab plan that we have. And from a more personal point of view, you know, you've been at the business for a very long time. It takes quite a lot of passion to stick at something for so long. So I'm really intrigued, Nicholas, what, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Why are you still so passionate about what you do at Zatu and continue to strive for the way you do? So first, I'm really in the industry I always wanted to be. So I feel very much at home. And to start maybe with basically give an example for why your question is a very good question. Of course, a lot of things repeat themselves, right? Uh, the other day I sat on a panel and I got the question and I kind of got an auto mode to answer it. And, and while I was answering, I thought to myself, oh, I'm boring myself with that answer that I gave <laughs> 10 times already, right? And that happens. So while, again, it's a very competitive market, a lot of challenges, so there's always enough like forcing you to also react and, and do something. Sometimes you also need to artificially put something in. So we have a very experienced, but also like long tenure uh, management team. Uh, a lot of them are with us for 10, 10 years and more. So we, we have very good chemistry. We know each other blindly and there has a lot of advantages. And on the other side, of course, it's important to get these external impulses, right? Like to, to artificially create situations where we challenge ourselves. Now, for instance, we have a, a new colleague who started as a tools chief product and tech officer. And it's fantastic to see the, the new ideas, the new perspectives, things that we've like circling around, always the same, always the same. And suddenly it's a, it's completely different view and completely different discussion. So you need these external impulses. And I, I also see that it cannot come, you know, out of me sometimes. So I, I need some external to challenge us. Excellent. And what would you say throughout your whole experience then at Zatu has been the most important lessons that you've learned? I mean, there's a couple of like strategic lessons on the market on the environment, how you do things and so on. And there are also personal lessons. And I think you, you, you know, you want to go deeper on, on the ladder. So one thing, and I've actually talked about it uh, just a few days ago in a uh, leadership training uh, that we uh, had at Zatu, which I participated in as a mentor. The change from being an individual contributor to really leading a team. And I give you a concrete anecdote and, and then the conclusion. So 
we had to, or we wanted to as a management, to pitch an idea to the board and to investors, to our shareholders. And I said, okay, that's my responsibility. I'll do a draft and then we as management can discuss. So I spent a lot of time and energy and brain and heart on this presentation until it was at a point where I thought that's a fantastic presentation, right? So I brought it to the manager and said, look at my presentation. And of course, a part of me was like hoping for, yeah, great. And the feedback was brutal. It was on every page there was a comment that, yeah, that message doesn't really come across and I would rather do this and that's, you know, not a story, it's boring and whatever you could think of. And the crocodile brain, you know, that, you know, part of your brain that, that's like four million years old and, and tells you, uh, okay, there's, you know, somebody's attacking you, uh, it, 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 all kinds of, like the, the, the parts of your body say, oh, that's all shit and you're unhappy with it. But I, I got over it, I didn't have a chance and I reworked the presentation and it was a much better one, much, much better one. So that was great to see that we have a better outcome. I was happy for now doing a much better job than I did before. And also for the team, it's much more satisfying, much better to work in that way. And I didn't lose respect from the team by, you know, not doing a great presentation in the first place, because that's not my job to be the one doing the best presentations or the best models or whatever. But my job is to make sure that in the end there's a good presentation or we have good ideas, whether they originate from me or not. That's not my job as a CEO, right? To, to be the one having the idea. And I think that's a big aha moment where you feel comfortable in like sharing and putting something in, going in with an idea, letting others destroy the idea, be completely open and say, okay, that's, I mean, that's a great privilege as you to then say, oh, that's a great idea. Let's pick this one. And I become the biggest cheerleader for that idea and make sure that the organization and the team, everybody gets behind it. And that was one of the many learnings during my time at CEO and, 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 and getting into that role. Earlier, you asked me whether I'm like a born leader or something. I was not captain of the football team. I did a lot of sports, but I was not. I didn't like like speaker of the, the school or something like that. So no, it was not clear that I'm the person who has to do that. But uh, a lot of that can be learned if you keep an open mind and uh, really understand what the role is about. It's a great story. And uh, it was making me smile when you were telling me about the lesson as well, because I had a very similar experience where I was writing some letters to, to some prospect clients and I'd spent so much time on it that, you know, you really invest in it, in it. But the more you invest in it, the more time it takes, the more it hurts when you get, get feedback. And I think it's an ego thing. You're like, oh, when they tell you this is wrong, that don't sound right and stuff like that. Exactly what you thought, where you feel a bit attacked at first. But then I took some time away. The next day I thought, you know what, actually, they may be, they may be right. Ultimately, the audience 
are going to be right because they speak for the volume rather than just me as the individual. And then I critiqued it kind of like what you said and uh, it did turn out a lot better. It was almost like a resemblance of what you were saying. So totally resonate with that. Good, good job getting over it. It's a big, big <laughs> It is. And uh, we always finish off on a, a bonus question, Nicholas. So our last guest always leaves a, a an interesting question for the next guest. So the last guest asked, if you could give one piece of advice to yourself at the age of 18, what would it be? I spent two terms in an English boarding school when I was 16. And my attitude was a bit similar to what I shared when I entered strategy consulting. I thought like, you know, the world is waiting for me. I'm a great guy. So I, I, I played football and tennis at an all right level, not like super well, but that were, that were, these were my sports. And when we started, there was a bit of tennis, but then the weather got too bad for tennis uh, outdoors and uh, football, like European English football, was only played by those who didn't really care for sports because everybody was playing rugby. And I said, no, rugby is not my sports, football is my sport. So, so I kind of played football with people who preferred to, I don't know, smoke a cigarette rather than playing football, instead of saying, hey, then I, and I make it to the second team of the rugby team. I, I won't make it to the first team, I never played it, but the second team I could probably do and enjoy that new experience. I mean, it's a fantastic sport. Enjoy everything around it, the team feeling and so on. And I was too stubborn and not open enough. At the very beginning, I said, I, I, you know, the way I grew up, it was all very narrow, very protective. And I was probably too narrow-minded. It's like, that's how the world should look like. And no, that's not my sport. So the advice would be to really go all in when you have the opportunity and then still maybe you find, okay, that's not my thing, but first give it a chance, give it 100% and that's the best way to, to get the most out of for you. Thank you, Nicholas. So what a wonderful story. I'm looking forward to getting it out to the rest of the audience and they can hear this amazing story. You've been fantastic, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Sean. That was uh, fun. Thanks for taking the time and uh, giving me your, your attention. Very much appreciated. No problem at all. I wish you all the best and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.